Well, that word of God together to the epistle of James and find chapter 2 and verses 12 through 13. We're resuming our walk through this New Testament letter authored by the brother of our Lord Jesus. And this morning we're returning to that section of the epistle where James is dealing with the sin of showing favoritism or partiality within the church, the body of Christ. As he says in verse 4, the sin that he's been addressing in chapter 2 is the sin of making distinctions among themselves. In essence, to make those distinctions is to be judging other people upon the basis of worldly or merely external factors. And in this case, as we've noticed in the last several weeks, it is specifically to make a distinction between those who are rich and those who are poor. To favor one person over another simply because of their status or their possessions or perhaps the way they dress even as they come to worship. We've noted that James is terribly concerned that there are those within the church of Jesus Christ who are giving preferential treatment to some people, namely those who are rich. And in doing that, they are violating the command to love. They are not showing kindness or grace. They become completely insensitive to the needs of those among them. And this is not a good thing at all. And so James continues addressing that problem in the verses before us this morning. And so let's hear what he says in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And now may our Father bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Well, again, what James is talking about is that of being guilty of improperly judging other people. And you might remember that in verse 4, he scolds his readers by calling them judges with evil motives, evil thoughts. That's quite a dramatic thing to call your congregation, a congregation of judges with evil thoughts and yet James does that rather boldly because they're violating the command to love as Christ has loved the church and if anybody is to love it is to be those who've been loved by the love of God in Christ and James is making his case based on the teaching of Jesus and Jesus taught that all of God's law and especially what we know as the Decalogue, is summarized by the two great commandments. Number one, to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and then to love each other as we love ourselves. And our Lord Jesus, as as James is recognizing here, our Lord Jesus taught that it is upon the fundamental commandments, these, these foundational commandments of loving God and loving one another, that all of the law of God either stands or falls. It is about love. Many of you have read this passage and you've been reminded of something that the Apostle Paul would write later on that sounds exactly, exactly parallel to what James is writing here. Many years later, the Apostle Paul would have a similar concern for the church and he would write these words in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. 
for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments, they are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, Paul says, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then we've seen as we've walked through this passage in the last several weeks that to fail to love one another as we love ourselves is to be guilty of the violation of all of God's law. If you violate one factor, one precept, one one minute fraction of the law of God, then you have violated all of the law of God. Verse 10, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So this is a big deal. Love, or the lack thereof, is big. Now with that background in mind, James turns to speak very directly and very practically about what he calls the royal law. And how the royal law is related to judgment. Let's just again think about what he says in verse 12. Notice this command. He says to the church, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, maybe that startles you a bit. You might have expected James to say something different, maybe to make another appeal to love, but yet what we find here is a word of warning to the church about judgment. And that's an ominous word. He is writing about being judged by God, coming under the scrutiny of the law of liberty. Now, remember what James is trying to do. He's trying to move the members of the church to love each other, to display Christian love, selfless love, redeeming love, but he does so by talking about judgment, about a judgment that is yet future. And in essence, in this verse, he is instructing us to every day conduct our lives, that's what he means by speaking that, to conduct our lives as those who will be judged one day. Let me play a game with you. The game is called Guess Who Said That? I want you to guess who it was who made the following statements. The first one is this. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever shall say to his brother, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Who said that? Who said this? Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who said that? (coughs) Or who said this? On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Or who said this? On the last day, quote, the angels 
will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who who said that? Well, obviously, that wasn't a hard test for you. Jesus said those things. That may surprise some people, but Jesus spoke rather bluntly and explicitly about judgment, a judgment that will come to all people, and about the reality of hell. And I would just simply submit here to you that no investigation of the teachings of Jesus can possibly be complete without recognizing how frequently he spoke of hell and judgment. That might shake up and reshape your image of Jesus. But he spoke freely about judgment. And so did the apostles. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote as he preached on Mars Hill. He said, the Lord God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he appointed, namely Jesus. And he gave assurance or proof of that by raising this man, Jesus, the judge, from the dead. There's a fixed day. And think about what Paul wrote in Romans 2. All have sinned under the law, will be judged by the law. Whoever has sinned against the law will be judged by that law. Or the Apostle Peter. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear while you're in exile. Think about the Apostle John, the last book of the Bible, the last surviving apostle, and obviously before he is lost to death, he pens these words, this vision, and he says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And this is the judgment that James is talking about. The point he's making seems to be clear. Those who make a habit of judging other people evidently have forgotten that they themselves will face a day when God will judge them. James is warning the church, he's warning the new covenant people of God that they must speak and act and carry out their everyday lives as believers in Jesus in view of the certainty that that fixed day of judgment is certainly coming. And this is the cure to partiality and favoritism and bigotry, and racism, and prejudice, and pride, and all those evil things that swell up in our hearts. It is living, it is speaking, and acting in view of the fact that one day our name will be called before God's tribunal. 
And the basis of judgment, according to verse 12, is the law of liberty. Now, we need to unravel this, right? Our heads are spinning now. We, we need to unravel. What is James saying? Is what James is saying in agreement with the rest of the New Testament? How are we to interpret this judgment, this judgment for God's people? What does that mean? Well, let's consider first this phrase that we will be judged by the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty anyway? Well, it's nothing less than the law of love. It is the duty, it's the obligation placed upon us by God to love others. You might think of the law of liberty this way. It is the law of God. Every law he's ever spoken, and especially the Ten Commandments, originally given to Moses and interpreted by Jesus. Reinterpreted by Jesus. Finding a laser beam focus on the word love. The law that finds its focus in this one word, love, is the law of liberty. It is the law given to us by God, interpreted through Jesus, focused on the word love. The judgment will be based upon the degree to which our hearts and our lives have been dominated by a spirit of love. And there's your judgment, the law of liberty. James is saying that if you belong to Jesus, if I belong to Jesus, then we should live every day as controlled and governed by this inner compulsion of love. And had they done that, they would not have recognized the rich man who came into their service and ignored the poor man who came into their service. Love would not let you do that. You see? Well, it's a law, a law of liberty, because it was not only sounded by God, but as we've indicated already, it was sounded by Jesus. This is what Jesus meant in John 13 when he said, a new, a new commandment I give you. It's as if he's taking all of the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue and funneling them, them down to one word. This new commandment I give to you is that you love one another. He says it again in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is the law that we must keep. Love. But it's the law of liberty. It is a love, as we will see in a moment, that actually sets us free. It is a law of love that sets us free. Think about, again, how the apostles also sounded this law. Think about the apostle Paul. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's the law of liberty. Think about the author of Hebrews where he writes in Hebrews 13.1, Let Brotherly love continue. Let it flow. Let it move down the tracks like an unstoppable train. That should characterize God's people, the law of liberty. 
The words of Peter are so compelling when he writes in 1 Peter 4, right? Above all, above everything else, keep loving one another earnestly since, since love covers a multitude of sins. The law of liberty. And again, the aged apostle John, he gets in on the act too. He says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and, and knows God. That's the law. Love one another. And that will cure everything that ails you. Love one another. But notice, it's not just the command to love. It is a law of liberty. It is a law leading to freedom. And this is interesting. This law is not an outward law pressing against us from the outside, squeezing us down and making demands of us. It is something that erupts from the inside. Now, maybe you've never thought about this before. James is referring to a law that's not written on stone. It's written on your heart. It is connected to something written by the finger of God that you'll find in the depths of our own personality, in the depths of our own renewed being in Christ. It is related to the fact that in Christ Jesus, we've been graciously given a new heart that now matches the requirements of this law. Let's say it this way. We've been given the very spirit of love itself, the Holy Spirit, who now dwells in us and moves us from the inside to love others as Christ has loved us. This is what Paul meant when he said the love of God. It's like this big funnel. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We love as this law beats within us now. And of course, you can perhaps already see this is the fulfillment of the word of the prophets who said one day, the Lord will have no need for those Ten Commandments because he will write his law on your heart. Listen to the words of Ezekiel and the words of Jeremiah. Ezekiel 11, the Lord promises, I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And they will walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. He will do something internal, an internal resurrection. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and they will be my people. I will be their God. This is what James is talking about. The law of liberty is written in your heart, dear people. Now there's a liberating power at work in you, making it possible for you to offer to the Lord a new obedience. 
You are compelled from within to obey. You are compelled from within to love. There's an instinct of obedience now pulsating in the soul of every Christian. And as we obey, we are free. We are free. Paul, again, will put it this way. As he writes the Philippians, he's, he's in jail when he writes this. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And as we obey and as we love, there is the deepest freedom, the deepest joy, the deepest sense of his fatherly pleasure. And we flourish as we obey this law. When we love, we are free. The law of liberty is not a new bondage. The law of liberty is the mark of the end of the old bondage and the beginning of true freedom. When you love, as you are inclined to do now that the Spirit of God owns you, you are free. You flourish. You come to life. And you know the deepest joys of all. But that isn't all that James says. There's another troubling line in verse 13, isn't there? He speaks of this judgment that's coming that we'll talk about in just a moment. He speaks of this judgment as being a judgment without mercy. It is without mercy. It is merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. The summary of this is the following. Everyone who has ever lived will be held accountable to God for love. When you reduce it down, here's what it's about. When we stand before the judgment of God, here are the questions. Did you love God? Did you love others? And when reduced down like that, the implication is that all sin is fundamentally a failure to love. It is a failure to love God and a failure to love others. And those are the terms of the judgment. Now, this sounds awful, awful ominous, doesn't it? That James would say the judgment that is coming will be without mercy. But again, listen, listen, this is what Jesus taught. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they, they shall receive mercy. What's the flip side of that? Well, you can figure it out. The unstated consequence of being merciless is you will get no mercy. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 18 that 
helps us understand what now his brother James is writing about. Listen to this parable. Listen to this teaching. You'll know it well. But it fits the context of what James says so, so beautifully. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and, and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and, and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Peter asks. And Jesus said to him, I, I do not say to you seven times, but I say to you 77 times. 77 times. And then Jesus speaks. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's a whole heap of money. Since he could not pay, the king, the master, ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment should be made. And that servant who owed that massive debt fell on his knees and implored the king, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the king, the master of that servant, released him and forgave the debt. He wiped the debt off the books. Millions upon millions of dollars. But later on, that same servant went out, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, just a few pennies. And he seized him. He began to choke him, and he said, pay me what you owe. (laughs) And that fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, have patience with me, I will repay you. But he refused, and he put him into prison until he paid the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they went to the king greatly distressed, and they reported everything that had happened. And so the king summoned that that man that wouldn't forgive, summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And his, his master turned in anger and delivered that unworthy servant to jailers until he should pay all his debt and then Jesus gave the divine commentary on that parable and he said so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart if you don't give mercy you will not get mercy And again, that's, that's big. And we wonder, how does this fit in with what we believe about salvation? As we contemplate these heavy words from Jesus, we need to be careful to understand what he is and he is not saying, what James is and is not saying. First, neither Jesus nor James is teaching us that by offering mercy, by offering love, we thereby procure mercy from God. No, we are not saved by being merciful. Our giving of love and mercy to others, as one writes, has no purchasing power according to some works plan of salvation. Rather, it has evidential value. You see that? 
If we could save ourselves by being merciful, then we would need no mercy from God. So he is not teaching that. Rather, rather James and Jesus are both teaching in concert. As Lenski says, that the mercy of God produced in the believer's heart and life by the mercy of God itself is evidence of true faith. No judgment condemns the man who has this evidence. Do you see the point? On that great day of judgment, those who've shown mercy to others because they've been born again by the Spirit of God, and they can't help but be like their Savior, they will find that God's mercy has blotted out all their sins. But heed the warning, heed the warning. It's been said that a man without mercy is a man without love. And a man without love is a man without grace. And a man without grace is a man without God. The man who is merciless and pitiless is clearly not a Christian. Oh, oh, how powerful a word that is. You see, a merciless heart is not a new heart. It's a lost heart. And the day of judgment will expose that heart as being lost. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? There are some implications that grow out of what James is teaching us here that we need to think about. Remember, first of all, he's telling us to live our lives in light of the certainty of God's judgment according to the law of liberty. And then when that judgment comes, there will be no mercy, only justice. What does it mean to live our lives as believers in light of the certainty that we will be judged? Well, the, the, first thing, the first thing we need to think about is that we have a different perspective on life and on people. We see the world through different lenses and we see people through different lenses. There's much more to life than what transpires in this life on this side of eternity. For example, we as the people of God who've truly been born again, we know as we read scripture, we know as we hear the word taught that this world was created by God. And he's the king. He has a will. He has a plan. He created us. He created everything. He's in charge. We need to listen to him. We know that. And we know that he has made every person in his image. We all belong to him. He has a rightful claim on every person who lives. And every person has a significance granted to them by virtue of the fact that God has made them in his image. Just that truth alone removes any rational expression, any quote-unquote legitimate expression of prejudice or favoritism or special treatment. We're all made in the image of God. But we also know that we're fallen. And sin has spoiled everything, and everything we touch is spoiled and polluted by our very touch. 
And yet God has taken the initiative to come find us in our sins. We would, we would never go to him. He came to us driven only by mercy. He was not driven by fairness. He was not driven by justice. He was driven by mercy to come find us. And he did so by sending his only begotten son into this awful world, into this pit of depravity to come, to come find us, to, to rescue us from the quicksand of our own rebellion. And he did it because he is love. But we also know that a day of reckoning will come. Every second that you watch tick by on your clock moves us closer to the day when we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the authenticity of our faith in Christ will either be confirmed or exposed as false. Listen once more as Jesus preached this very thing. Listen to these words of Jesus. And think about the connection to love and mercy. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, when he comes in his glory, and all the angels with them, then with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then Jesus says, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then those righteous people on the right will say, Lord, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When were you thirsty and we gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? When were you sick? When were you in prison and we came to you? And then Jesus will say, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, you gave me no food. Meaning, you didn't love my people. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick, I was in prison, you didn't come to visit me. And then they will answer, Lord, we didn't know. When were you? When were you sick? When were you in prison? And he will say to them, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, that poor man who came into the worship that day, to the degree you did not do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It is this day we have to keep thinking about. This day is coming. James is sounding this awful and this ominous truth to the church to wake them up, to wake us up. 
He is sounding this truth to help us rearrange our priorities. That we have a, a citizenship in heaven. And therefore, we are, we are to be disentangled from the world and worldly things. We are to practice discipline. We are to feed our souls on the word of God and equip ourselves with God's armor. But most of all, we are to love. We are to be doggedly persistent in love, in Christ's love. When in doubt, love. what does loving require? What does the new heart beating within us compel us to do? It compels us to die to our self-interest. It compels us to give without any expectation of receiving. Our new hearts compel us to serve without any expectation of being served to lavish each other with the mercy of God and to freely forgive the sins of others and letting love just cover them. Paul says something in the Colossian epistle that has been bringing deep conviction to my soul all week long. Paul says... If I may paraphrase, the Lord has loved you, and he has saved you, and he has lavished his mercy on you. And here is what he did. He took the record of your sins. Paul calls it a certificate of decrees against you. He took the record of all your sins, all your failures, that record, that infallible record kept in heaven of every sin, of every breach of God's holy law. He took that record, God took that record, and he nailed it to the cross. Paul says he, he did away with the record of your sins. Do you see that? And those things were all true about you. And in mercy, God ripped it off the wall, as it were, and he stuck it to the cross. And that record died with Jesus, and you are free. There are no more sins that separate you from your Father. You have been redeemed and saved and forgiven, and your sins are buried in the deep, deep sea of his mercy. And then Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 13 something interesting. He will say, now we understand why, he will say, love keeps no record of wrongs suffered. And this is demanded by love. You need to tear your list up. You got a list of things that people did to hurt you, mentally or written down somewhere? And you can't wait to get with them and just read them that list. I've done that. I have delivered that to someone before. And in tears, that person said, please tear that list up. And my heart was broken that I remembered every one of their sins when God had forgotten them. <laughs> Do you see what love, what mercy does? Listen, tear your list up. 
It'll change your relationship with your spouse. It will change your relationship with your children and your in-laws and your outlaws and your neighbors and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do what God has done. This is what mercy looks like. That's love. Do you see how that destroys racism and bigotry and prejudice? All the things the first century church was guilty of, all the things we are guilty of. Love keeps no record. It just takes people as they are and covers their sins with love. And that's what James is asking. You see, you've got it in you to do that. If you belong to Christ, you've got it in you to do that. Because when he comes, the question is going to be, did you love God? And did you love his people? Did you love like God loves? On that day that Jesus comes, here's what's going to happen. I want to put you at ease. And James does. You can see that James leaves us with great hope. And we're not going home until we get this part. Look at the end of the paragraph, verse 13. Mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This final line anticipates what's going to happen on the day of judgment. What's going to happen to you? When our names are called and we stand before God's throne, for those who know Christ, for those who do have new hearts, two things are going to happen. Number one, All creation will see the work of Christ for us. As your name is called before the tribunal, you will stand before God not guilty. You will be clothed in the beaming righteousness of Jesus. And your sins are gone. There is nothing for all of creation to see but the work of Christ for you. The judge will look down at you on judgment day and see a perfect reflection of his own son coming back into his fatherly eyes. And there will be no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. And in that moment, mercy will triumph over judgment. But something else is going to happen. Not only will all creation and all the heavenly hosts see the work of Christ for you, the work of Christ in you will also be seen. That you have loved. That you have the evidence of the Spirit's work in your heart. And that evidence reflecting through the very righteousness of Jesus. Your transformation will bring glory to God. On judgment day, your transformation will be complete. 
You are being transformed now. I am being transformed now. We are learning to love now. We are learning to burn our lists of sins that others have committed against us. We're learning to have forgetful memories when it comes to hurts and pains. We are learning to love each other. We are getting rid of all prejudice and all bigotry and all pride and everything that that destroys love. We're not there yet, but we're moving there. And on Judgment Day, we will be there. And it will be said of us, we have loved God and we have loved each other and God will get the glory. All creation will see on the day your name is called that God's great mercy in Jesus Christ has fully triumphed over the judgment we deserve. And on that day, God will be glorified And his love will be exalted to the highest magnitude. And that will give us reason to praise him for all eternity. Brothers, sisters, may we love each other. Let us forgive each other. Let love cover a multitude of sins. Let love reign in our hearts and in our families, in every relationship, in every conversation. May the love of Christ absolutely dominate our lives for the glory of God. Let's pray together.